breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Week to week, it's always great to be back with all of you to talk about some of the things that are at the top of the mind, top of the agenda, top of the threat matrix when it comes to radical Islam, political Islam, and the terrorism that is Islamist-inspired. Yes, we have diverted sometimes to talk about the pandemic, to talk about COVID, to talk about healthcare, medical ethics, and a lot of different things. But for the most part, this is a program where med- where Muslim reform begins, where I, as one of the members of the Muslim reform movement, find the issues that the mainstream media will not talk to you about, but we will talk about here. And yes, there's a lot of talk lately about wokeism, about being woke, about the cancel culture. And thanks to our broadcasters at Blaze TV, I don't have to worry about any of that. They allow me to talk about the things dear to my heart, which is America, which is my faith in God, and the fact that I feel that political Islam is the cancer that ultimately feeds Islamist radicalism and Islamist terrorism, and that you can't treat the cancer unless you treat the cause. You can't just treat the symptoms. And every day in the news, you can find examples that talk about the threat that's continuing to increase from jihadism across the planet, not only in Muslim-majority countries, but in our countries in America, in Canada, in England, in Sweden, in Germany, Italy, across Europe and the West. In fact, according to the IPT News this week, in a Data that they reported on February 19, 2021, they said authorities in Denmark and Germany arrested 14 suspected Islamists earlier this month for plotting a terror attack in Europe. Included three Syrian brothers accused of acquiring firearms and several kilograms of chemicals used for manufacturing explosives. This was reported by Denmark Security Intelligence Service. ISIS flag was also discovered in subsequent police searches. European governments have been facing numerous types of terrorist actors across the ideological spectrum. And the extremist activity continues to increase. Jihadism, quote, according to the U.S. Congressional Research Report of February, said, Jihadist terrorism has been much more lethal than other types of terrorism, according to accounting for nearly all recent fatalities and casualties. Let's repeat that. Jihadist terrorism has been much more lethal than other types of terrorism, accounting for nearly all recent fatalities and casualties. Gosh, if you watch the news, you think it was all white supremacism. Attacks perpetrated by ethno-nationalist organizations or separatists were responsible for the most terrorist incidents. For example, national separatist groups carried out 508 attacks between 2014 and 2019, whereas jihadist and right-wing extremists perpetrated 110 and 22 attacks respectively. Jihadist-affiliated terror groups 
killed 374 people during this period. However, national separatist terror groups caused six fatalities. And far-right terror groups killed two. So the Congressional Research Center report shows that most arrests related to the terror activity are tied to jihadist actors. In 2009, 436 out of 1,004 terrorism-related arrests were linked to Islamist extremists. That's almost half. Security authorities across Europe devote considerably more resources to combating Islamist terror threats, most of which are foiled or disrupted. Imagine if they weren't following those and they weren't foiled of the ones that do get through. Germany, just by itself, has foiled 17 jihadist terror threats since attacks since 2009. One plot involved a couple that had procured enough ricin for a biological attack that could have killed thousands of people. And the report goes on. The one that I started talking about, German prosecutors charged a Syrian national for the October stabbing of two men in Dresden. Motivated by Islamist extreme ideology. But these plots receive far less attention. Why is that? We've talked about that here. There's a pathology of wanting to face political Islamists and their groups, not wanting to be labeled as bigots. And then in a, in a, in a bizarre twist of data, Somehow, populations that welcome with open arms millions of immigrants become labeled as bigoted if they are concerned about an ideological threat that terror groups bring in them. So if you bring in a million, if they say, oh, it's a small percent, 10% are supporters of ISIS or even have sympathies for them, sometimes up to 25, 28%, do the numbers. You're talking about 100,000. So imagine how much resources you need. When this is why you have some, we ask, our, we scratch our heads. Why are there so many lone wolves? Why are there so many known wolves, right? The term known wolf, the Patrick Pool, I think was one of the first ones that coined it. We talked about lone wolves. They say, oh, they're by themselves. They're not attached to any global terror network. And they say, well, yeah, but they've been in the radar of the police systems, of the FBI, of, of Interpol, etc. They're known. And then they commit an act. Or supposedly rehabilitated individuals then commit an act. Known wolves. And that's even with all the resources they're putting into the Islamist threat. And yet now, if you look at many national conferences going on in America, it's almost as if the Islamist threat has vanished. It's not even being discussed as we turn inward to partisan rancor and the other issues that yes they're important domestically we have a, a number of things ripping apart our country ideologically culturally and otherwise but we can't let our guard down no different than the threat of china increasing the green threat with that red green alliance right the red is the chinese global communists and, and socialists and the far left and the green is the islamists and that threat continues to increase. And make no mistake, reports like the data discussed by the IPT, I think, bring home the fact 
that the threat isn't going anywhere. The main thing I want to talk to you about today is a fantastic piece by a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute that was published in the Wall Street Journal, Wang Chu, about what he learned in an Iranian prison. What he learned in an Iranian prison. And it's just such a basic learning point that it, 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 it brings tears to my eyes that he had to spend 40 months in prison in order for the realization to be discussed of what he learned. We'll get to that in a sec. There's a topic we've spoken about here before, which is Shamima Begum. She left the UK to join ISIS years ago, and she wants to come back. Her attorneys wanted to come back. The far left wants her to come back because she's a citizen. She needs to be at quote-unquote home. And the family wants her back. She left London in 2015 to join ISIS. But the Brits and the government said they can't, she can't return. She can't restore her citizenship. The UK Supreme Court ruled a few days ago that when she was 15, she ran away to Syria and she abandoned her British citizenship. They revoked her British citizenship two years ago, citing security concerns. And to me, this is pretty basic. As a former naval officer in the U.S. Navy, not only did I take an oath as a naval officer to protect this country from enemies foreign and domestic, but to preserve and protect the U.S. Constitution. And anyone in any Western free secular democracy, anyone who then swears loyalty to an enemy of your country, by explicit definition, abandons their citizenship. And she had hearings. And even the Supreme Court now ruled that she may not return. And the Islamists are silent. They defended her a little bit. And even we even saw CARE Florida, the Council on American Islamic Relations, Hassan Shibli, defending one of the so-called ISIS brides, which I hate that term because it somehow humanizes them into such wonderful people. Here's ISIS jihadists. And the ISIS jihadist wanted to come back because she had a daughter here, etc. And she said she made a mistake. And Kerr defended her, saying that, well, no, 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 she was the daughter of a diplomat and uh, other sort of loopholes, which made it clear that she was a citizen. And no, any legal mechanism we can from preventing these folks from coming back when they are enemies and declare war and join an organization that is sworn to destroy our country and kill American citizens. They do not have any right to come back to this country and pretend to be citizens because that's what it would be, be pretending to be citizens. Begum, after she joined the Islamic State, married a Dutch fighter. She's now 21. She has three children. She had, rest their soul, three children that all died due to illness or poor conditions. Her husband remains in northern Syria in a detention, in a Kurdish-run detention center. There was a search undertaken to find her. Folks initially didn't know that she had joined ISIS. 
at the time when she was found, she did not regret her actions of joining. So even upon being found, it's not that she had been somehow brainwashed into joining and upon somebody finding her, she woke up. No. She said she does, quote, I actually do support some British values and I'm willing to go back to the UK and settle back again and rehabilitate and that stuff, unquote. Wow, what a convincing contrition. (laughs) It's not funny. And, you know, hats off to uh, Home Secretary Sajid Javid, who's Muslim also at the UK. Their Homeland Secretary is Muslim, conservative. He said she might be able to pursue citizenship in Bangladesh, citing her eligibility because of her mother's origins. And for the rest of you, the British Nationality Act of 81 lets the government strip Britons of their citizenship if it would be conducive to the public good and if the person wouldn't become stateless as a result. And she wouldn't. She could go to Bangladesh. But Bangladesh has shown no interest in extending her citizenship. She's never been there, they said. commission that's hearing some of her appeals in the UK noted that Begun's appeal would not necessarily succeed. It also said that because of her status living under armed guard in the El Roj camp run by the Syrian Democratic Forces, her appeal process could not be seen as fair or effective. The Supreme Court eviscerated the Court of Appeals ruling, laying out four points in which it said the lower court was outright mistaken or applied faulty reasoning. It stated in its summary judgment, the Court of Appeal mistakenly believed that when an individual's right to have a fair hearing of an appeal came into conflict with the requirements of national security, her right to a fair hearing must prevail. But the right to a fair hearing does not trump all other considerations, such as the safety of the public. The Supreme Court also said the lower court had erred by invoking a British law guaranteeing residents access to the courts despite Begum not fully making that argument. And it said that the court had not given the government's national security assessment the respect which it should have received. If it's impossible for her case to be fairly heard, the Supreme Court said her appeal should have stayed until she could effectively participate in hearings. It's not a perfect solution. But there's no perfect solution to the dilemma of the present kind. A lot to be learned here. Nobody's saying that you can have hearing. The courts heard it in Britain. But she is not the victim. She joined an organization, which she does not deny, that declared war on the country that she wants to then all of a sudden ask for a mulligan to get her citizenship back which she said she can't have has stripped from her, but they can. Remember the U.S. deployed drones from the Obama administration in 2010 to kill Imam Awlaki, who had declared war in the United States in his perch as one of the leading terrorists of Al-Qaeda, radicalized in the United States. You had some folks in the U.S. saying, oh, he should have been hunted down and brought in for a trial in order to have the rule of law. There is no doubt 
this is a you know the, the rule of law is important and yes their threshold should be very very high for such a thing to ever happen but there's no doubt that imam olaki had declared war in the united states the videos and the the the, the arabic and english and clerical pronouncements of jihad are are plethora on the that we had seen in the 2000s from Awlaki. So a targeted killing of an enemy of this country who was perched in Yemen was a correct thing. And when folks like Begum decide to ask for a mea culpa and come back, sorry, not on our watch. Now, the most important topic today is about what Wang Xu, I hope pronounce I hope I'm pronouncing his last name correct, but just fantastic, fantastic write up in the Wall Street Journal on what he learned in an Iranian prison. And it's simple. He said his forty months in prison taught him that US foreign policy isn't to blame for the mullah's deep-rooted hatred of America and Americans. Ding, 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 ding. U.S. foreign policy isn't to blame. It's the ideology. <laughs> We've been saying that. The, the anti-Islamists of our reform movement have been talking about that for decades. Decades. We knew it was their ideas. They will find a grievance from the Palestinians to Kur- to the uh, uh, Kashmiris and on and on. They will find as many as possible in order to deflect from the supremacism of the theocratic idea of Islamism. So let's look at what what they said. He opens his piece by saying, Iran, Europe, and many progressives are pressuring the Biden administration to revive the 15 nuclear deal known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA. Groupthink has coalesced around a, sing- has coalesced around a singularly misguided belief that the U.S. has so badly mistreated Iran in the past that it must engage and appease the Islamic Republic now. He was taught to believe it, he said. It convinced him that he could safely do research for his dissertation in Iran. But his optimism was placed not long was misplaced. After he arrived there, he was imprisoned quickly by Iran's brutal regime and held hostage for more than three years. He had the opinion. He said he had the prevailing academic view of the Middle East. And boy, this is to, to, to step aside from his quotations for a second. What greater indictment do you want of Middle Eastern studies in the United States and who's funding it and whose dole they're on and whose interests come first, America or Islamist regimes like the Khomeinists? When you have somebody who came out of a prison that had gone there with the academic training of the Islamists in America, he had absorbed, he said, back to quoting him now, I had absorbed the oft-repeated lesson that political Islam arose in response to Western colonialism and imperialism and that the West, particularly America's Middle East behavior, was chiefly responsible for the region's chaos. 
His professors taught him that the U.S. had treated Iran with a mixture of Orientalist condescension and imperialist aggression since the founding of the Islamic Republic in 79. He thought that the 53 coup and America's role in that that removed Prime Minister Mossadegh explained everything that had gone wrong in Iran. Always the West's fault, always the American infiltration. Convinced that the mullah's hostility towards the U.S. was exaggerated, he often dismissed allegations of the regime's malign behavior as American propaganda. So he pivoted away from disrespect. He didn't really pay attention to it. He assumed he'd be left alone in Iran since it was often thought to be propaganda that they were so anti-American. And as long as he remained apolitical, focused on historical research, they'd leave him alone. But he was shocked when the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence arrested him on false espionage charges in August 2016, right after the implementation of the JCPOA. This deal in which there was supposed to be an opening, a moderation, long before the Trump administration, during what appeared to be a period of rapprochement between the U.S. and Iran. He was thrown into solitary confinement, forced to confess things his interrogator knew he had not done, and sentenced to 10 years in prison. I don't even believe this. He doesn't really say if he's Muslim or not, but on this program I've talked to you so many times about all the Muslims held that are tortured because they want to reform, because they're against theocracy, against the mullahs, against the bearded fascists. And this guy just came from the U.S. and went to study there, gather some information. Never made it a secret about who he was and what he was doing, but they thought he was a spy and tortured him. His interrogator made it clear that his sole crime was being an American. He told me that I, used, that I was to be used as a pawn in exchange for U.S.-held Iranian prisoners and the release of frozen Iranian assets. And he was released in 2019, prisoner swap. under the Trump administration. His terrible 40-month imprisonment was a period of intense re-education about the relationship between Iran and the U.S. The Islamic Republic is an ambitious power, but not a constructive one. It's a spoiler, projecting influence by exporting revolution and terrorism via its proxies in the Middle East. Again, Things I've talked to you about here so many times about what it does in Yemen, what it does in Syria, what it does in spreading the terror of Hezbollah and the, and the Iranian Republican Guard Corps. Here's the money quote, folks. Nothing I had learned, he said, during his years in the ivory towers of academia had prepared me for the reality I encountered at an Iranian prison. I learned what many Iranians already know. The regime's hostility toward the U.S. isn't reactive, but proactive. Isn't reactive, but proactive, offensive, rooted in a fierce anti-Americanism and meshed in its anti-imperialist ideology. As he witnessed firsthand, Tehran isn't interested in normalizing relations with Washington. It survives and thrives on its self-perpetuated hostility against the West, a posture that has been integral to the regime's identity. And he goes on, when you talk about 
Obama's genuflection towards the Khomeinist fascists. He says that they didn't regard that engagement as a goodwill gesture, but rather as an iron fist under a velvet glove. Iran's revolutionary regime retains power through conspiracy and intrigue and views everything through that lens. The notion, and this is a support of the entire position of Secretary Pompeo and the Trump administration about why the maximum pressure regime against the regime worked. He says, the notion that it'll be difficult for the U.S. to regain Iran's trust after quitting the JCPOA is simply incorrect. The Iranian regime has never trusted the U.S. and never will. You can't build back something that never existed. They hate us, they despise us, and their ideology demands that they look at America, and this is my own now, I'm not quoting him anymore, they look at America as the land of war. The land of war while the other land of Islam. Darul Islam and Darul Harb. When he was being interrogated at the Evan prison, his interrogator boasted that they were eager to see Donald Trump elected, not because the regime viewed him as the type of pragmatic leader they could deal with, because it would justify a more confrontational stance against the great Satan. That's interesting. So if your response to that is that then we should appease them, you really... You really don't understand human nature when it comes to war prevention. The Ronald Reagan doctrine of peace through strength. Peace through strength is that ultimately you have to not only have the verbiage that you will destroy them, but have the ability so that they will fear you, that you can destroy them and you will destroy them. If they ever threaten our citizens, threaten our interests, and take us on. And he goes on to clarify. He says, for 42 years, Iran has demonstrated that it changes its behavior only in response to the strength in the form of American-led international pressure. If the Biden admin returns to the JCPOA without extracting concessions from Tehran beyond the nuclear threat, it will relinquish all U.S. leverage over the regime. Diplomacy can't succeed without leverage, Only by showing strength of will can Biden hope for genuine progress in containing the Iranian threat to peace. Thank you, Mr. Wang, for a a wonderful review. And I'm sorry he went through 40 months of imprisonment. But may we learn, may we learn something from that. May we learn about the price of freedom. May we learn about the way to confront radicalism. And that it can't be done. It cannot be done by, by simply appeasement but it has to be done through strength it has to be remember this week we saw the bombing of a shia militia group in syria that had been responsible according to the Biden administration and intelligence for targeting u.s contractors and other american interests in the region and this was a retaliatory strike Now, the Biden administration went out of its way to make sure it was clear that that was simply retaliatory retaliatory and very limited. But I think also, as much as I've been, you know, apoplectic about all the the, the far-left extremism coming from the Biden administration, this at least shows that 
they're serious when it comes to not necessarily appeasing every, crossing every T and dotting every I of the JCPOA again, but that they're actually going to probably try to be a little tougher now. It still seems like a lot of appeasement. It still seemed like Kerry was doing a lot of back-channel work that violated a lot of norms, if not propriety, when it comes to loyalty to the United States. But having said all that, hats off to any American operation that destroys terror groups, be it in Syria, Iran, or or, or anywhere. Now, you, you granted, Ilhan Omar responded with her predictable questions about the sovereignty of Syria. She cares so much about the sovereignty of Syria. She does. And it seems like her, her complaints about sovereignty seem to be only when it's in Iran's or Islamist regime's interest, like Erdogan in Turkey. But if it was about Saudi Arabia or other non-Islamist allies, oh, she wouldn't care about that, would she? It's a very selective concern about sovereignty. And the whole sovereignty issue, we have troops there, we have contractors there that were attacked. And we have a right, we have a demand, we have a moral responsibility to defend them. So, the simple teaching point that foreign policy and American actions did not create the ideology or exacerbate it in any way, that in fact, at its core, the Islamism of the Khomeinists and the political Islam is an anti-American, anti-Western, anti-Semitic ideology that must be defeated and can never be appeased. That teaching point from Mr. Wang and others is so pivotal, so key. Don't forget it, please. Spread that around. Share this with all your friends. Let them listen to this. Read the Wall Street Journal. Read other excerpts of the work of those who have been in the Evan prison. Women that are doing the work of their movements for equality. Next week is going to be the International Women's Day in which we talk about the need and the barriers that still exist in the equality of men and women. Last, on that note, I have to tell you, social media was a Twitter this week with CARE and other Islamist groups backslapping themselves. And go and look at their Twitter feeds. They showed a picture of Samira Fazili, a Kashmiri, an, a, 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 a lady from of Kashmiri origin, who's deputy director of the National Economic Council, and that this picture that the hijab-wearing U.S. official spoke at the White House press briefing with the White House's emblem behind her was just a unbelievable moment of symbolism for American Muslims. Now, that would be great if they had hailed the substance of what she was saying. If they had hailed the substance of what she was representing. 
But it wasn't about substance. It was simply that she looked Muslim and was wearing a hijab. Nobody knows what she was saying. They didn't report it in any of their... It wasn't the sub... So what is more patronizing? What is more demeaning to women than to say that their identity and the recognition of their advancement is based on the fact that a hijab-wearing woman is giving a press conference not about the substance or anything of what she said or what she stands for or what she does, but simply that she was there. So we Muslims are props. Are we props? That's the way the left sees it, I think. And that's the way the Islamists love to see it, especially if you look at the Council on American Islamic Relations and the women that it has chosen to represent them at press ops and on their boards. There is even this hilarious picture in which there was a woman at one of the at the Care Washington Care National pictures in which a black marker was used to create a hijab around her head because they posted a photo with a non-hijab wearing woman that is the type of radicalism and extremism of the islamist and the misogyny of the islamists that run organizations that supposedly speak for the american muslim communities and I think there's nothing more symbolic or metaphorical than the backslapping over who knows what, simply her presence there. Most women I know that we work with in the Muslim reform movement are offended at that type of superficial recognition rather than substantive recognition about what the ideas they are that brought to the table and true, true civil rights, equality and movements that would be something honorable for the advancement of the equality, towards the equality of men and women. All right. Hope you're all doing well. Stay safe. This pandemic is soon, I hope, to be behind us. We have a lot of issues to talk about. Start talking about, you know, we're going to be looking again continuously at Europe to see what's happening in France, what's happening in Austria, and on. As we have talked about at the beginning of the program, the numbers are not getting any better as far as the threat and the time for reform could not be any better than what it is now. Always great to be with you. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R, and at Reform This Radio, Reform This Radio on Twitter, and spread this podcast to all your friends. This is Zudi Jasser, the Blaze TV Podcast Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.